You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the sermon this afternoon, which will be about the second commandment, as it's taught and confessed in Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism. In connection with that, we'll read two passages, first from the Old Testament to Deuteronomy chapter 9, beginning at verse 7 through to verse 29. Remember this, and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert. From the day you left Egypt until you arrived here, you have been rebellious against the Lord. At Horeb you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you, I stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water. The Lord gave me two stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. On them were all the commandments the Lord proclaimed to you on the mountain of the fire, on the mountain of the assembly. At the end of the forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two stone tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord told me, Go down from here at once, because your people whom you've brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They've turned away quickly from what I commanded them and have made a cast idol for themselves. And the Lord said to me, I've seen this people and they are stiff-necked people indeed. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I'll make you into a nation stronger and more numerous than they. So I turned and went down from the mountain while it was ablaze with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. When I looked, I saw that you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way of the Lord, the way the Lord had commanded you. So I took the two tablets and threw them out of my hands, breaking them to pieces before your eyes. Then once again I fell prostrate before the Lord for forty days and forty nights. I ate no bread and drank no water because of all the sin you had committed, doing what was evil in the Lord's sight and so provoking him to anger. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But again, the Lord listened to me. And the Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, but at that time I prayed for Aaron too. Also, I took that sinful thing of yours, the calf you had made, and burned it in the fire. And I crushed it and ground it to powder as fine as dust and threw the dust into a stream that flowed down the mountain. You also made the Lord angry at Taborah, at Massa, and at Kilbroth Hattavah. And when the Lord sent you from out from Kadesh Barnea, he said, Go up and take possession of the land I've given you. But you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You did not trust him or obey him. You have been rebellious against the Lord ever since I have known you. I lay prostrate before the Lord those forty days and forty nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Overlook the stubbornness of this people, their wickedness and their sin. Otherwise, the country from which you brought us will say, Because the Lord was not able to take them into the land, he promised them, and because he hated them, he brought them to be put to death in a desert. But they are your people, your inheritance, that you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. Now we'll turn to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. Make every effort 
to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear to hear, they could not bear what was commanded. If even an angel touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, those whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's turn to our text. Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the second commandment. What does God require in the second commandment? The second commandment, which is, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. We are not to make an image of God in any way nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we not make an image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Ten Commandments are summed up in the two commandments that the Lord Jesus Christ taught were the most important. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Last week we saw that the first commandment was really to love the Lord your God exclusively. Because only in exclusivity can love for the triune God be expressed. Only true love for God can be expressed to Him 
and to Him alone. Well, this afternoon we come to the second commandment. And we are still under that same umbrella of the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God. To love God entirely with our heart, soul, and mind. In the second commandment, in the second word of the covenant, God instructs us to love Him properly. Properly. That's our theme this afternoon. Love the Lord your God properly. Love Him as He is. Love Him in His way, in the way that He would have us love Him. And love Him because He loved us first. Love the Lord your God properly, as He is, in His way, and because He has loved you first. So first then, love the Lord your God as He is. In order to love God properly, we're taught in this commandment, and to avoid idolatry, we have to love God as He is. It's important to know God, to understand who He is. The commandment is not to make an image. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness, as the older versions have it, of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, of anything anywhere. And you shall not bow down to them or worship them. This was a commandment against worshiping God improperly. It was a commandment for expressing your love to God in the way that He would have us express His love. It's very closely connected to the first commandment. The first commandment was a prohibition against having false gods. This is a prohibition against representing God in a false way. Both of the first two commandments are about loving God. The first one about loving God exclusively. This one about loving God properly. If you think about different times in Israel's history, the first commandment was against building a Baal temple in the land of Israel and and worshiping Baal there. The second commandment is against making a golden calf, like the Israelites did, as we read in Deuteronomy 9, and calling that God, the Lord God, Yahweh. If the first commandment is a commandment against having a god named Vishnu on your mantle at home, the second commandment is against having a god that looks somewhat like Vishnu, except you don't call it that, you call it the Lord God, Yahweh, and worship Him through that statue. Now perhaps for some of us, as we mentioned last week, this sounds a little ridiculous. This idea of idolatry of making an image and bowing down to it and worshiping it, we're much more likely to to be like the prophet Isaiah who mocks the images than we are to make an image ourselves and, and bow down to worship them. Perhaps you would even ask, why is this commandment necessary? Well, it was certainly necessary for the Israelites. In their time, making a God, crafting a God, and, and, and worshiping it, setting it up, giving it its own temple, having one for your home. It was culturally acceptable. It was a very acceptable thing to do, and the Israelites did it. As you can see with the golden calf episode. For Eastern cultures, 
This remains the same today. It's very culturally acceptable to have an idol at home, at your place of work, to go see the idol in the temple, and to worship God through that idol. As we can see from the context of this Lord's Day, for the Roman Catholics, especially at certain times and in certain places, crafting an image of Jesus or Mary or another saint and and praying to it was acceptable. This sort of practice has been acceptable for many people throughout the ages. But we can be thankful for the inroads that Protestant Christianity have made in in our culture, in our society, that images of God are, are are not very popular. Protestant Christianity has made great inroads to remove images of God from the popular mindset, from popular culture. In fact, perhaps you'd even think that the inroads have been so, been made so far that this commandment has largely become irrelevant. But yet it remains terribly relevant for us today. Because there is always, there is always the inclination in a sinful heart to bring God down to our level, to make God more palatable to our society, to bring God closer to His worshipers, to make God fit with the values that our culture finds relevant, to remove His holiness and His majesty, and to make Him easier to deal with. And all these things are idolatry. All these things are spoken against in the second commandment. The second commandment still very much applies for us today. Again, if the first commandment prohibited us from, from imbibing the, the cultures, the supreme values of our culture, and, and making those things into God, what the second commandment prohibits us from doing is from taking all those values of our culture and ascribing them to God and saying that God is really all about those things. For example, in an affluent culture, to say that, no, we don't worship a God of, of, of money or prosperity anymore, but God is all about giving us prosperity. I don't have to bow down to a God of of prosperity, I can just ascribe that to God. And what He cares about is that I have a large, fat wallet and all my material needs looked after. Every blessing in that way. That's the sort of idolatry that we're talking about. Or tolerance, another popular a popular idea of our culture. And not having a God that we call tolerance anymore but taking the ideas of our culture and ascribing them to God so that God is above all a tolerant God. And He puts up with whatever people do on this earth. So why does God prevent us from making images of Him? Of of bowing down to them and worshiping them? What's so bad about an image, someone might say. Okay, you you can't change the nature of God, but maybe you can have the same nature of God and, and worship Him through an image. But the commandment teaches us that by not worshiping God properly, we in fact change who He is in our minds, in our hearts, and in our wills. We change God immediately when we make an idol when we craft an image 
with which to imagine him or to worship him or to bow down to him. First of all, because God is invisible. God cannot be seen. We cannot make a visible representation of God because he is God, the invisible God that Paul talks about. The invisible God who has been invisible from the beginning of the world. We also immediately change God because He is so majestic and glorious that to, that to make an image of Him, no matter how beautiful or precious, large, intricate, it cannot match with the majesty and glory of the God who has revealed Himself only in His Word. We immediately change who God is because He is the Creator. He is the Creator. We are His creation. We cannot make a creation and call that the Creator. We change God immediately. To create an image of God is to change something about the nature of God Himself. And that's one of the big problems with idolatry is that it changes God. And if it changes God, who is one, who is true, then He ceases to be God. And then you have a false God. And now you're breaking the first commandment as well. This commandment teaches us exactly that. That to change God is to deny Him. Notice that in the second commandment, it speaks about about those who hate God. God says He will punish those who hate Him. Who is it that hates Him? It's the one who refuses to worship God as He is. As the invisible, majestic, glorious Creator of heaven and earth. We have to know God as He is. And this, brothers and sisters, requires a diligent attitude from all of us. We have to be careful in this. Because for some of us, we would be prone to say, yes, we need to do this. And in order to do that, we need to talk about the wrath of God. Because that will scare people into believing in God as He is. And there was a time when it was the fierce wrath of God that was considered to be His predominant characteristic. But that is not God's predominant characteristic. And to say that that's what God is all about, and you better worship Him or else, is idolatry. But then we can't stray too far on the other side and be, be more liberal and open-minded and avoid the problem of God's wrath altogether. God is all love and no anger. This is the problem we find ourselves in so much today where God's love doesn't have any justice in it, where anger has been removed from God altogether, and and only an empty sort of grandfather-like love and grace are all that's left. This, too, is idolatry. The second commandment requires that we be diligent in understanding who God is It also requires that we be very humble. We can only receive God in His revelation of Himself through His Word and in no other way. We can only grasp what God has shown us about Himself and cling to that truth. We must be humble. 
We cannot imagine great things about God. We can only learn great things about God from His Word. We cannot suppose to know Him in any other way than through what He has revealed to us. God's Word is our way of understanding Him. So we have to be humble about our ability to grasp God. It can only be through His Word. But the second commandment teaches us to be tenacious at the same time. We might we have to reject all other gods and all other ways to God and all other theories of God that conflict with His Word. We have to be humble in receiving this from God, but then tenacious in protecting it from the attacks against God's character. We have to stand on the foundation of God's Word. Cling to His revelation of Himself. Know it thoroughly. Read it daily. Study it diligently. And understand it comprehensively. Because therein, we learn about the true God as He is. We need to strive to understand who God is so that we can love Him properly and not settle for some cheap imitation that is called God. Or some counterfeit God or some knockoff God. They say that bank tellers can quickly recognize counterfeit bills. Immediately upon feeling one, they can... They can tell that it's counterfeit. And this comes not from, from having extensive training courses where they learn the different textures of, of all the different counterfeit bills that are out there, what they could possibly feel like. No, they learn that from constantly handling real money. They're always dealing with the real thing so that when something false comes along, they can identify it immediately. It just feels wrong. That's why we have to be with God's Word. So proficient in it. So busy with it. Reading it so often, so carefully. Engaging with it. Speaking about it. Knowing it. So that when something false comes along, it just feels wrong. The invisible, almighty God has revealed Himself in His Word. So in order to avoid idolatry, we need to worship God in the way that He's revealed in His Word. Learning to know and trust and stand in awe of our awesome God so that we don't settle for those false imitations. We have to love God as He is. We also need to love God in His way. Forbidding images, as the second commandment does, not only means worshiping God as He is, but it also means worshiping Him in His way. Answer 96 says, not only we are not to make an image of God in any way, but it goes on, nor are we to worship Him in any other manner than He has commanded in His Word. We move now from, you could say, the object of our worship, which is God, to the process of our worship, how we worship But here we realize that the process of our worship says a lot about the object of our worship. How you worship says a lot about who you worship. Think of Hebrews 12. The author of the letter of Hebrews 
says that we need to worship God acceptably, with reverence and awe. That's the way we ought to worship. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. So even the process of worshiping God with images corrupts, changes who He is. Worshiping God in any wrong way corrupts who He is. You see, what was detestable about idolatry was not just the false gods, but it was also the way that those false gods were worshipped. The process of idolatry was also detestable to God. The way that the pagans understood idolatry is very instructive for us. They said that there were gods out there and that those gods lived in the idols that people made for them. So they didn't actually think this idol was a god, but that the god lived in that idol. And the god had all sorts of different powers that were really great, but they lacked one thing. They couldn't feed themselves. And so they counted on the worshippers to come and give them food every day so that the little idol could feed so that God could be nourished and, and he could, or he or she could go and do what they wanted to do. And so, in exchange for food, the God representing that idol would be indebted to the person who gave the food and they would do nice things for them. So really, idolatry was a way of getting what you wanted out of the God or the goddess. It was a way of, of manipulating the God. And then you see right there that the way that you worship says a lot about who you worship. They thought their God could be manipulated. And so they did that in the process of their worship. This process, you realize, was ultimately self-focused, as all false worship is prone to be. Idolatry and false worship are all about using the process of worship to manipulate the gods and to give you what you want. There's a little story from history that, that illustrates this very well, I think. It's about Alexander the Great. As on his way up, as he was coming to, to greatness, he went to a place called the Oracle at Delphi. The Oracle at Delphi was a young lady who was thought to channel the thoughts and intentions of the god Apollo to people. So the Oracle would go deep into the temple of Apollo in a sort of a cavern there, and there she would speak, they, would, they, they believed, the words of Apollo. And so Alexander, wondering, wanting success, wanted to go to see the oracle and see what Apollo would say about him. Now the problem was that the oracle would only do this once a month, one day a month, and Alexander came on the wrong day of the month. But not to be discouraged, he went and found that young lady and physically brought her to the temple. And as he was pushing her there, pushing her through the temple into that cavern, she turned around and said, young man, there is no resisting you. And he took his hands off her and said, Thank you. I'm done. That's all the oracle I wanted. Alexander knew exactly what he wanted. And that's exactly what he heard. That's the way it is with idolatry. So clearly seen in that story. It wants to force the hand of the gods. It's all about manipulation. And as with false worship of pagan gods, so it is with false worship of the true God. 
It's often about manipulating the situation to suit our own needs. We come to worship with a desire for emotional fulfillment. That is paramount. And we're only happy if the processes of worship suit that desire. Only if there's emotionally fulfilling songs. Only if we can have that authentic worship experience. Only if there's emotionally appealing preaching will we go home satisfied. Or we come to worship with a desire for intellectual fulfillment. And we're only happy if the process of worship suits that desire. We need, we need rich and deep intellectually fulfilling lyrics of our songs. We need philosophically inclined preaching that, that, that satisfies the mind. We need that sort of emotionless exchange of ideas in order to go home satisfied. Or we come to worship with a desire for sensual fulfillment. And we're only happy if the process of worship suits that desire. We just want to be entertained. We just want to laugh at funny jokes in the sermons, sing catchy songs, have eye-catching visuals. And we'll only go home if we meet that desire. And so our selfish desires prescribe the kind of worship that we want to follow. And in doing so, we make an image of God. A God who is only engaged through visible, passionate, expressive worship. Or a God who only caters to the intellectually elite. Or to a God that only cares that people not be bored. That they stay awake and somehow be entertained. Or it's possible to come to worship with no desire at all. Expecting nothing. Not expecting that you will be touched, moved, prone to uh, come to worship, to glorify, to praise in any way. And so God becomes aloof, distant, or altogether gone. Well, what kind of worship would God have us engage in? He would have us worship in a way that does all the first three things, in a way that is emotional and intellectual to a certain, in a certain way, and that is sensually appealing. But all these three things must be done in a way, in the manner prescribed by God's Word. So what must our worship look like? Well, our worship must be, first of all, Christ-focused. Because He is the image of God, as Colossians 1 teaches us. And He is the way to the Father. Christ stands at the center of our worship. And so it is that the Word is so important for worship. Because the Bible is, on every page, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it communicates the Gospel message throughout. You find this word focus throughout the Bible, whether it's Moses in Deuteronomy urging the people to, to write the law of God on their hearts, to know the decrees, or whether it's the early church where we read repeatedly about the spreading and preaching and receiving of what? The Word of God. It's for this reason that the preaching of the living Word, as the Catechism mentions as well, is so central and important 
Because preaching is God's means of communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to His people for their salvation, for their upbuilding, for their strengthening. Hebrews 12, we read together, says, See to it that you do not refuse Him who speaks. Well, how can you hear Him if not through the preaching, through the proclamation of His Word? This preaching is also to be spiritual in nature. And it points to the spiritual nature of worship. It's Christ-focused. It's driven by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit uses the Word to build faith. And the Spirit also uses the sacraments. Those are the entertaining, not the focus is not entertaining, but those are the visuals that God gives us in worship. Baptism of a child of His covenant. Lord's Supper in which we receive the bread and the wine to, to focus us on Christ. And in so doing, they communicate that same gospel message. We learn from God's Word that He wants clarity. He wants understandability. He wants a certain kind of simplicity. We learn that God wants reverence and awe. So we read in Hebrews 13, because He is a holy God. We learn that God wants to hear His people in prayer and in song. We learn that God wants His people to meet together, to be together as a community. Perhaps you were thinking, as I was, thinking about the second commandment, okay, perhaps I have a false image of God in my mind, But how am I ever going to change that? If I wholeheartedly believe that's true, how is that going to change? Well, one way is by receiving the Word. Another way is by being a church. By engaging with others. By being corrected, rebuked, admonished by your brothers and sisters in the Lord when we stray into having a false understanding of God. And many more as well. Search the Scriptures. The process of worship is important. And to avoid idolatry, we must worship God in the way that He would have us worship Him. Finally, we must love Him who loved us first. In order to love God properly and to avoid the temptation toward idolatry, we have to realize that God loved us first. It's God's love that holds us to Him. True love true obedience, true thankfulness, working out the second commandment in a way that pleases God can only come from thankfulness. It only comes as a response to the love that God has first shown to us. In fact, anything else is idolatry. It comes back again. Legalism promotes idolatry by portraying God as a God who, whose love has to be earned. Antinomianism, lawlessness, promotes idolatry by portraying as a God whose love is empty of of discipline and justice. But true love flows from the love of God. It doesn't come from God's anger. Terrible reality as it is. The second commandment teaches us about the reality of God's anger by showing us that God punishes those who worship falsely. 
It's a reality. He punishes the, the fathers and their children who follow in their ways to the third and fourth generation. God exercises His wrath against those who, who show that they hate Him by not knowing Him truly, by not worshiping Him truly, by who, those who try to manipulate Him. They don't love Him as He is in His invisibility and holiness and truth and providence as He has revealed Himself in His Word. God's anger stands against those who reject Him and His way. God's anger is a terrible reality. But, true love and worship comes as a response to God's love. Love. God says there's three or four generations of those that I'm going to punish, but I'm going to show love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's God's love that inspires us, that moves us to love. It was in His love that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world as the perfect image of Himself to reveal Himself, to display His power and might, to show His holiness and His justice, to demonstrate at the proper time His love. It was the love of God that drove Jesus Christ to the cross and punished Him for the spiritual idolatry and false worship of His people, even though Jesus was innocent of any sin. Yes, God exercises His anger against idolaters, against wayward worshipers, against self-focused people. These have all been punished in Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary. Atonement has been made for those sins through that ultimate action of love when He who was God laid down His life for us. Brothers and sisters, at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ is where we learn to love God properly. Because it's there that we realize the fullness of God's love. It's where all our pretentious innovations in worship and idolatrous inclinations are covered, are atoned for, are washed away. It's there where true, thankful, and obedient love begins, grows, and moves on. That furious love of God displayed in Christ excises the idols out of our hearts and sets there the King. The One who is the image of the eternal God. The One who is God, who is the only way to the Father and who draws us into His love and affection and the eternal joy of the Most High to worship Him truly and properly now and forever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.